Are strikes justified? If you live in the UK, you have definitely been affected by strike action since last summer, and many more strikes are still planned this year. Ambulance staff, teachers, railway staff, border force, airport staff, bus drivers, highway workers, even the post office. As the cost of living skyrockets, all of these groups have taken to striking to get their point across and improve their lot. But should they? Is it fair? Is it wrong for people to strike in these situations? Well, we'll talk about the specifics of what I mean by these situations, but you mm. know, you can sense a theme amongst these groups. These are all largely public services. You missed uh, civil servants as well off the list. I didn't realize that they were. When was that? The thing is, they do nothing anyway, so it wasn't really noticed. <laughs> also, that reminded me of um, the reel you sent me the other day about landlords, um, which is kind of spoiling the punchline, but that was so funny. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It was like what landlords strike too. <laughs> it was just like these two sort of very middle class guys being like, yeah, you know, it's so inspiring seeing these people take action. Maybe we should strike. And it's like, the thing is, it's a, it's a thankless job being a landlord. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, there are, like you say, there are, there are some limits in existence, not, not just landlords. Uh, there's relevant limits on who's permitted to strike, military and police, for example. But in this case, I think we're going to focus more on the morality of the decision to strike when the service you provide is like it's, it's an essential public service or a general public service. And like you said, we'll define that more in a bit. Yeah. Welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things, guys. Uh, I'm Ant. And I'm Jake. Ah, there's a little delay there. I was like, who are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> Once again, this is another uh, remote episode. You'll probably hear from the fact that my microphone probably sounds different. It's just my laptop mic this week. Hopefully mine still um, sounds really This nice. time, yeah, this time I am in sunny Buenos Aires. Mm, how is it over there, mate? Sunny. Uh, I know, it is lovely. It's, you know what? It's super Italian feeling. A very European feeling in Latin America. It doesn't feel like Latin America at all. For anyone who's traveled around kind of northern part of South America, Brazil, uh, Central America... You know, there's certain things that are quite common there, not here at all. So, for example, a tiny thing. You don't see anyone, like, juggling at the red lights to, to ask for tips. Uh, everything is very upscale and fancy, actually, relatively here. Interesting. Nice. Um, well, uh, like I said, I mean, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, and... As always, we'll proceed with this episode in the usual way, which is we'll, we'll lay out some key definitions in context. But then the question we'll be looking at today is, I guess, something along the lines of when a strike's justified. Did you have a more specific phrasing of the question in mind? No, I think, that, I think that's probably exactly it. Um, a little shout out. We've had a few people reply to our form uh, where we just asked for feedback. Jake, I've got some bad news for you. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I have officially pulled ahead by one vote. On the desert um, island question. In regards to, on that, yeah, who would you want to be on the desert island? It's currently three to me, two to Jake, two to literally anyone but these two. <laughs> um, but thank you, thank you very much to the people who did leave very detailed feedback. Uh, it helps us kind of understand what people do enjoy, don't enjoy, and how we can kind of progress and take it further. So thank you very much to, so, uh, we didn't actually have a name field, so it'd be quite hard to extract all the names quickly. But thank you all very much. Like we've read all the, the answers carefully and it does help us a lot the pod. Also, thank you to, let me get the name. I think it was Catalina who messaged our Instagram podcast right? Instagram. Kat Katarina, Katarina. Just to discuss uh, how much of a uh, despot you've become, slowly, Jake. <laughs> this was regarding our um, views on epistocracy, right? Our views, your views. 
Uh, no, no, no. She very correctly pointed out, uh, and I think it was—it's an interesting distinction that we kind of, you know, discussed with her. The kind of distinction between the kind of Greek idea of like virtue and how intelligence is only one virtue, and people being intelligent doesn't mean they're necessarily good people, which might mean that an epistocracy doesn't well qualify people mm-hmm. running the country. More, you want, you know, in the style of Aristotle and Plato, kind of the the most virtuous people, which is a total get out because you know what does virtuous mean? Just whatever you don't want it to mean. <laughs> yeah, if, well, if I recall correctly, I mean, she was saying there's basically never a time when someone defines a subset of leaders that they don't include themselves in that subset, which is, I guess, ironic and also a bit of a failing of any of those kind of models, which is a really interesting point. I would say, and I think I caveated this quite carefully in the episode, but I would say in defense of my point, my view is not that you want like an elite ruling class. My view is that you want systems in place to ensure really my concern is with things like the brexit vote that you actually want people to be like factually informed i think i did actually i was very careful in the way i phrased this in the episode but it's you're not looking to do these tests to be exclusionary you're looking to have tests to like get people bought in and and kind of qualify people in the sense of like we're all voting on an evenly informed level so if people know things for example like how much the nhs costs you'd never have got away with that bus slogan that said that the eu was stealing 350 million pounds that we could have been allocating to the nhs stuff like that is actually that's more my angle but no it's it's a very fair point i think we might not have made that clear so yeah and i also think her point is kind of why i was like eh, just open it up more just because any way you draw lines is so so subject to bias good example that anyone who suggests how you draw lines never exclude themselves <laughs> yeah and the age limit thing is another one right we said on the episode that age limits were i wouldn't mind if we set the demos to be really small i guess like what if we said it's like five thousand people no it's gonna be too <laughs> aristocratic then so never mind um aristocratic in a bad way it's too biased to get to those anyway let's continue with today's episode yeah let's get back onto strikes so a few things we need to discuss one what is or isn't a strike What's a public service and some of the moral perspectives on why strikes may be wrong or justified. So let's set the scene initially. And perhaps we're stating the obvious here. Things have changed quite a lot, even in the last few years. We've, we've had COVID and everything that's followed. So inflation is now on a 50 year high. In the UK, it's around 10%, although hopefully it's about to come down. Obviously, inflation is is how much prices for everything is going up, which then affects the real value of things. Let's and Can we explain the real value of things? I, I'm sure all our listeners know, but just for absolute clarity. So yeah, just like we said, super quickly, inflation is the rate at which prices are going up and then the real value of things is basically to give a little example right um if we're talking about real wages right you'll often hear this term real wages it's got to be real if my wage yeah if my wage goes up five percent but inflation is ten percent then actually the cost of everything around me is going up faster than my wage is going up that means that my real wage growth has actually been negative right Mm. so like you know, let's say the basket, for the sake of simplicity, I get 10 pounds. Uh, normally I spend the 10 pounds on bread, milk, whatever else. I'm a prisoner from the 1800s. <laughs> or an orphan in Dick Dickensian times. Exactly, Dickensian or orphan. If everything goes up 10% in cost and my wage only goes up 5%, clearly in that small example. So the cost for everything goes up to 11 pounds, but I only go from 10 to 10.5, despite the fact my wage has gone up. In real terms, I'm worse off. Right, I have to give up something for my basket. I think that's clear, but why is that happening now? Then what's what's driving inflation at the moment? Okay, well, well, just super quickly. So part of the reason that this is super relevant now is because this is exactly what's happened to a lot of people. So for example, you can give some specific numbers, but like for example, nurses, many other uh, many rail staff. Yes, they've received met for for many years. They have received pay rises, or they've received sub-inflation pay rises, and then this year inflation being so high 
with the suggested pay rises that they have, they they stand to effectively lose a lot of salary. So despite the fact that generally we assume Western economies should get better every year, their life is actually getting worse. This is it, right? This is a key point because you actually, you could get paid more nominal terms. So you'll actually be taking home more money, but your standard of living is actually decreasing because everything is getting so much more expensive, which I think is at least for all our UK listeners, it's it's a relatable fact of life at the moment. And, and I'm sure international listeners are seeing similar-ish things around the world. Yeah. So Jake, Early economics lesson, do you want to explain what's driven inflation? In fact, what drives inflation more generally and what's driven inflation specifically in modern times? Yeah, there's, I mean, you'll recall from our lectures, there's a few different ways this can happen. The kind we're seeing at the moment is uh, is the kind you describe as overheating. So this is when the money supply or velocity of money in the economy, like basically how fast is money moving around, that's going up. So that could actually mean wages are rising and, and we're seeing that like people are getting some pay rises, wages rising faster than productivity in this case. So when you pay it, when everyone gets higher wages, more money is chasing the same stuff? Exactly. Yeah. The government is printing money. We've seen a lot of that in COVID. And when more cash ends up chasing the same stuff, you get this kind of overheating inflation. And the central bank usually uses interest rates as a lever to try and control this. So you raise interest rates to encourage people to save more, hold their cash, slows down the speed in which money circulates around the economy. And that's that's kind of how you, in theory, correct overheating. So that's that's probably the description of what's going on here. Although there are other factors. There's definitely other factors. So like, there's that sort of like money moving more quickly element of inflation, right? There's another type of inflation though. Again, super relevant at the moment. Um, and that's cost push inflation. Mm-hmm. So that's just when the cost of things, of making things goes up and the price ends up in one way or another passed on to the consumer. Um, so that could be raw material prices going up, it's mm-hmm. true post-COVID, um, backlogs in a lot of uh, supply systems and, and not enough materials, and also not enough labor in a lot of places to build greater things, for example. Mm-hmm. It could be meaningful new taxes, making things more expensive, passing on to consumers. Anything where cost increases. And I think, yeah, one of the things you said already, but like the backlog in supply chains from COVID is actually probably the biggest relevant factor there. So, oh, no, no, Jake, how could you forget? Well, the energy prices in factor. Yep. The most relevant factor is energy prices, right? The thing, yeah, the, I think all these things have been kind of compounding though for a while, right? So in COVID, you were seeing shipping was just like the cost of shipping things went like through the roof because of just like the system, basically like supply chains before COVID, things were so well globalized. And there was a sort of just in time model of like manufacturing that actually everything was moving around really fast, but there was a sort of delicate balance that when COVID shut things down, suddenly everything ground to a halt. And you saw this particularly with like tech companies or tech manufacturing rather, but loads of other things. So shipping skyrocketed and this cost kind of- shortages. Yeah, and this cost eventually has been sort of passed on. But as you say, of course, energy, Russia, another massive factor. When you think about the modern cost of living for most of Western Europe, to some extent the US, not as much, actually basically not at all. A little bit because it's changed the global price for oil. But in that context, the biggest exogenous shock is probably energy prices. And that's the term from economics, exogenous shock. What does that mean, just for clarity? It just means outside. It means a, a shock outside of our control, outside of the model, right? So if we're thinking about the UK economy, it's a shock that's come from outside of the UK economy. Importantly, we don't necessarily believe it will be permanent, but it has caused a very meaningful chunk of modern inflation, both directly because cost of everything is higher, like cost of running shops is higher, the cost of your house is higher, et cetera. But then also uh, indirectly, people who are running whatever business where they need to consume energy to make their product or you know, move their product around have to pass that cost on. You've seen that with them, um, shipping costs going up and things like that. So all of this, uh, we talked about money being printed over COVID, cost push inflation through high energy prices and everything else. All of this has created this high inflation environment, which is 
meaning that uh, real wages are decreasing. So people effectively, they aren't getting paid as much as everything else is going up. They're demanding more pay. This is probably the biggest single factor in explaining the strikes. However, just to finish off this kind of context section, there's a few more things. Uh, I picked out the example of nurses to describe this, but it applies, I think, to a lot of other sectors too. We're talking about like sort of real pay, but there's also, I guess, a question of fair pay. And the reason I'm saying quotes there is because it's not just about being paid more relative to the standard of living. It's about being paid more relative to the expected responsibilities that you take on. And I think this is a big UK problem in particular, thanks to Brexit, because of general staffing shortages. So the people who are working feel like they're not being paid adequately for the work that they do and the level of responsibility and expertise that they've been required to take on in the, in the current setting. That's a very big factor. Are you saying it's not just that they're doing the same work and that their pay is, is falling over, like falling in real terms? It's also that not only is their pay falling in real terms, but at the same time, more and more is being asked of the average worker. Yes, I think that's actually a very true description of what's going on. And I think it's almost a more emotional like there's more of a sort of value judgment going on there. And I think that's what I get you. I also think it's 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 difficult emotionally for the public, this one, because, um, you know, on the one hand, it's strange for, for such a social service to strike. It's a real irony, I think. All the measures we took during COVID in the effort of like saving people and all the thanks, you know, all the clapping for medical services yeah. and stuff. And then when these people are like, oh, well, actually, we don't think we're paid well, we're like, well, uh, like, too much of the response is like, well, too bad. Like it's a market economy. I mean, this whole this whole issue, I feel so torn on because my general political leaning is very pro these people fighting for better pay and stuff. And it, it's generally my opinion, if someone is, for example, doing something as socially productive as being a nurse, it's no doubt that they should earn enough to live a dignified life with a family if they so choose. Right. Yeah, and that's just not the case for most nurses. But where's however, the- on the flip side, this is this is what we're going to talk about. Like, mm. does the balance make sense? We'll talk about the kind of the caricatured image of like the noble workers standing up to like the evil profiteering capitalist. It's the kind of communist sort of versus capitalist depiction, isn't it? We'll come to how this is different. Let me just add a tiny bit more context to the nurses thing. So we talked about real pay. We talked about fair pay. One last thing. So along with all this is basically nurses in particular, they've expressed concerns about the lack of career progression opportunities, growing workload pressures. And you've kind of hinted at this already, but it's all built up during um, during COVID, you know, unfair working conditions or extremely stressful working conditions have led to shortages, high levels of stress and burnout. All of this is also impacting the quality of care that people are able to provide. There's attrition, there's people leaving, and basically everyone who's left is, I think in their case, very reasonably, you know, demanding fairer compensation for what they're going through. And obviously, as we we're about to say, that, you know, they're striking or threatening to strike to draw attention to these issues and pressure employers and policymakers to take action to address them. I think that leads us fairly neatly onto the next question, which is, and what is a strike? Yeah. Okay. So um, a strike generally is the collectivization of laborers to refuse to work in unison altogether. Important. So that means it's a coordinated effort. Uh, so this intentionally undermines the normal dynamics of a labor market, right? So even if technically this labor is replicable, they can't be replaced quickly if they all refuse to work tomorrow. That's part of the point of a strike. Like rather than um, allowing only a subsection, it's, it's by working together. They're like, no, you need to satisfy an entire block of us. And we're using our collective bargaining power. Even if you're, say, you run a coffee shop, right? This is a very micro example. Say you run a coffee shop. Go on. This is actually really important to the to the morality of this, right? Say you're in a coffee shop and you pay badly, right? The normal market economy response would be you should have trouble hiring good, suitable staff. And at some point, hopefully you kind of realize like, oh, wait, if I just pay more, I'll save money due to the turnover, having more engaged staff, et cetera. 
and you should increase your wage, right? The whole theory of equilibrium there of supply and demand. Exactly. But no matter what, no matter how replaceable cafe staff, which is you know, fairly easy to replace, is, you know, if all of your workers refuse to turn up tomorrow, it's going to put you out for a couple of weeks, a month, while you find replacements, right? So it's that collectivization that kind of changes the dynamics versus a normal labor market. And then also, it's very different for something like nursing as well, because nursing isn't quite as liquid as, uh, say, like a cafe shop. It's more skilled is your point, right? It's a more skilled work. It's more skilled and people are more invested in that. So it's even harder, like it's not going to take you a couple of weeks or a month. It would take someone like the UK government months to work out, okay, how do we get nurses abroad or mm-hmm. years? How do we entice people to become nurses and train them? And then likewise for the nurses, it's not impossible and things would be, need to be really bad. But generally, you know, a lot of them spend a lot of time skilling up and don't particularly want to retrain for another career. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not as liquid, there's higher friction, yeah. um, which is part of the reason they end up using this uh, dynamic. And it's not quite a liquid one. Tell us about unions, because that's where these guys become relevant. What are unions and how do they work? Yeah. So unions, they kind of, I, I believe they kind of came about from this happening a bit more organically. You know, say workers in the factory would start to talk amongst themselves and say, hey, we should organize to do this. The union is basically an independent body who coordinates this. It's a focused labor organization, which you normally have to pay membership to, and then they negotiate on your behalf. So it's not just that they will organize strikes. That's no, no. It's it's actually their main function is very different. Their main function is just to represent staff, and you pay a membership in order to fund the people who are putting their full-time effort into running the union. Basically, imagine if you know there's a hundred workers in the factory. Rather than each of them individually putting a tiny bit of time into working out how they can settle any disputes they have with the company, negotiate pay rises, etc., they all give a tiny bit of their salary, and one person can quit and go full-time on negotiating all of their salaries and negotiating all of their contract disputes and deciding when they need to strike and things like that, right? So it's, it's, it's basically creating a centralized resource for that sort of stuff. It actually, in many ways, it's really great because say, for example, a teacher's union or something like that, if you're a teacher and you have a problem with your school, sometimes it can be a, a bit of a David and Goliath, like, oh, how can I even pursue this, right? The union kind of levels that out because then rather than you being the David fighting Goliath, you have a Goliath on your side. Right, yeah. a union who who will be on your side. It even so, it really helps for insurance. Exactly, it's really for 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 insurance, for lawsuits, uh, for negotiating pay rises. It's to kind of collectivize and fight on a fair playing field. There's a really appealing efficiency argument to that as well, right? Which is exactly that. It allows you to focus on your work, take some of the stress away from having to worry about these issues, and aligns everyone who, like you say, I mean, you've got loads and loads of Davids, and and by allowing them to kind of come together, it, it, it sort of collects their resources. It's a fine irony that a union is actually a very good example of division of labor. It really is. I was literally thinking that. Like, Adam Smith would be proud. It's the pin factory. Adam Smith would be proud, yeah. The tiny example I gave, it's one person becoming full-time expert in negotiating contracts and insurance and stuff. It's Yeah, it's the same reason footballers have agents, except what's, what's different there is that footballers are individually, like, they have a lot of bargaining power. However, agents enable the negotiations to happen, well... To some extent more efficiently, to some extent less. I'm not going to go off on that tangent. It's efficient to have someone whose sole purpose is to negotiate these things and take away some of that headache. Yeah. Uh, So generally, we consider the right to unionize and the ultimate right to strike an important part of a healthy society because it's an important check and balance on the power of these companies. But we also have public policy against these uh, large companies. So for example, we set reasonable terms for working that everyone has to adhere to. For example, minimum wages, uh, maximum hours per week, Health and safety, to some extent. Health and safety rules, all sorts of things like this. 
right? Mm -hmm. Rules around pensions and the need to provide pensions and match pensions, right? So there's, on the one hand, we, we enshrine rules to allow people to negotiate on their own behalf. On the other hand, we also set absolute minimums in a lot of regards, right? Mm -hmm. One important thing also about strikes, there are, like we talked about, some, some people aren't allowed to strike, like police and the military. Generally, for anyone to strike, there must be a legitimate negotiation process or whatever that's failed before they have the right. However, what qualifies as a legitimate negotiation process rather than someone going through the uh, through the steps, uh, you know, it's hard to really determine. Jake, we're just about to have a, a small pause in the session. Any thoughts on what we've said so far? I, I mean, my, my biggest thing is I do think it's an extremely efficient thing to have unions and striking, I suppose it's worth mentioning, is is always meant to be an action of last resort, right? You have unions in order to settle negotiations and, and go through these processes to be able to avoid the, coming to the point where you need to strike. However, we'll come on to like why it's resorted to this. I'm going to very quickly highlight something that I think, okay? I think unions are important because similar bargaining power, you know, having a, a similar standing of bargaining power is important for a fair negotiation. Bargaining power is the key phrase. Bargaining power is, yeah, that's, that's the essential thing. However, however, right? I'm going to highlight two things. And this will come up again later. One, if a union represents the workers, right? First of all, that's only a small group amongst a much larger society, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we determine you know, what's fair or, or best, you know, if they're optimizing to what's best for their workers, how do we decide when that's in conflict with what's against the greater good? So to give a very, uh, to give an example, this is very, a bit 70s, 80s, but you know, unions for coal mines, right? Mm. They could argue, no, we can't, we can't shut down the coal mines, et cetera, et cetera. But on a longer term scale, it's a societal good to not have coal mines, right? Aside from the fact that they're terrible places to work, they're terrible for the environment, we now realize. And ultimately, like, a transition away from that industry was needed. I'm not saying that Thatcher was right to take the actions that caused the strikes. Like, you know, there probably should have been a more gentle transition period. But like, my point there is that if you ask a coal miner, they're never going to say, oh, we need to shut down the coal mines. Um, so point. their view yeah. is, a, is a little bit myopic there. And then the other one, and anyone who lives in the UK or in London specifically might actually relate to this one. Um, what happens when the union has too much bargaining power? And you're talking about train drivers and tube drivers and stuff, right? Tube drivers, right? Yep. So for those who don't know, the people who run the tube in the UK, they earn a very high salary for people who are relatively low skilled, right? So something like $75,000 a year, 50, 60,000 pounds a year. Last I heard a few years ago, so it's probably gone up. And they make it incredibly hard to apply for the job, right? You have to have worked at TFL for however many years. It's, it's all a very convoluted process. And again, from a societal good perspective, they will never argue this, but maybe from a societal good perspective, we should really be thinking about starting to invest in technology so that we need fewer drivers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if we can, if we can have self-driving cars, we can absolutely have self-driving trains that go in a straight line. Yeah, we have the Docklands Light Railway, right? We have, we have one example of that. There even is the a line where we do that, right? And yeah. so sometimes, sometimes my point there is that sometimes too much bargaining power can actually lead can first of all lead to unfair outcomes on the other side. We're just so accustomed to being the other way that we don't presume that to be the case, right? Which is true, like the majority of work issues are the other way around. And yeah, sometimes sometimes we end up more bent towards what makes sense for, the, for that specific small group than necessarily makes sense for that, even for that group in the mid to long term. Because hey, in the mid to long term, rather than using union power to fight the modernization of that technology, maybe we should be thinking about 
negotiating for them to like be supported into transitioning into other skills right yeah i actually i do i see where you're coming from and i do i do largely agree because i think this is a case of myopic is the key word that you use there and i think it's a case of when negotiations kind of get stuck on this kind of position what, what you describe as positional bargaining so you're coming from the point of view of we want a you set yourself up against like sorry in opposition to the government or whoever you're bargaining against saying we want B. there's a really good book that we read or and i think you listened to last year which is getting to yes by roger fisher recommended to us by ted shout out to ted i don't know if ted listens to this ted Stimson. yeah good guy anyway love this book it was genuinely one of the more interesting business reads i've ever come across and this whole thing there was like you want to step out of this paradigm of positional bargaining which allows you to think a little bit more creatively about solutions what you've described is a really interesting example because let's go back to the the coal mines that's quite a straightforward one it's socially beneficial to eventually phase out the coal mines i imagine at the time so this is what 1977 they announced they were going to close like 25 mines and then kicked off like weeks of strikes and there were three-day weeks and energy shutoffs and all the other sort of stuff that happened there but i imagine although ultimately simply, in, the, in the multi-decade in the multi-decade perspective it was totally the right thing to transition away from coal and, and that's where you do want negotiations that are happening on a level of like, this is where we need to get to as a society. There's no point defending like the rights of coal mines to exist forever. You want to be aiming to a position where this is where we want to get to. How do we support the workers through this? What different solutions can we come to that preserve their rights, but doesn't, you know, isn't locked into this position of you're going to be mining forever? Um, yeah. And this, well, this is interesting because the coal mines fit more. We'll talk post the ad break. It is more in line with the kind of communist ideal of the protest, right? Us mm -hmm. against this big profitable business. When you start to talk about nurses, it feels weirder taking this argument because, you know, most of us would say people who work in services like nursing, they are taking a societal good perspective and they just want to yeah. like get enough to get by, which is why it starts to become this conflicted thing. What you definitely need in the case of nurses is arrangements that this is why I wanted to bring up that context earlier of like, it's not purely a pay thing. There is like a sort of quality of work, other things like that, career progression. I think also post-COVID, genuinely, this is weird to turn an entire cultural movement into like a sentiment from my side, but there's a sentiment thing as well, right? Like they want to feel appreciated. It's funny, as an employer, I totally understand this. Like often when someone wants a pay rise, obviously the pay is useful. It's often sentimental. Well, it's, it's often about recognition. It is. It's the reason why I said about fair pay, because it, it's not just about being paid more. It's about being paid what you feel is a fair reflection of the services you're providing. And if you've got nurses whose real wage is declining because everything else is going more expensive, you're bound to already be feeling undervalued before everything else is taken into account. I'm not saying then that clapping is the solution or <laughs> things that make them feel more appreciated, like sort of pats on the back. The problem is inflation and clapping in the value of clapping, right? Because well, if we it. clap for everyone, suddenly a clap's not that valuable. <laughs> Maybe this is what happened. Oh my God. I can... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still feel like in the case of nurses, pay is, it's the key lever that needs to be pulled, but there are other things you'd want to take into account, particularly around working conditions and contingency arrangements to fill in supply shortages and sorry staffing shortages etc cool so jake let's let's pop up for an ad break quickly a little ironic in the midst of our communist support <laughs> here's potentially a message from our sponsor if an ad gets placed we'll find out we will otherwise you'll hear us again right now so everyone welcome back um now maybe we never left maybe, maybe we never left maybe there was only a, a two second nothings ah back into the void <laughs> I saw, that reminds me of a meme i saw and i relate with it so much it's from this tv show or something it's just a little cartoon mouse and he suddenly just kind of pops into existence and he says ah 
back from the void. Uh, and the caption says, like, when my consciousness returns in the middle of the night, like, whilst out drinking. <laughs> so, that's so relatable. Like, I, I actually have, like, a memory of once I was in Amsterdam and I was out drinking and smoking weed. And I just have this very distinct memory of, like, suddenly, like, oh, whoa, <laughs> where am I? <laughs> where did I go? Of the night. Yeah, where did I go? And I'm back, back to the void. You do that all the time anyway with just your... <laughs> <laughs> Your yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> so a couple sections. We'll be talking a little bit about the specific context of now, why this is important. We kind of started to touch on this a bit and how some disputes have been resolved or not. And then we'll kind of look more, as we've said, you know, is it, it is a philosophy podcast, a little bit more on the moral side. So we'll do a little, we'll highlight some of the kind of pros and cons and some of the analogies. There's a very interesting analogy, which I think it sounds like a being unfair, but like to try and explain why this is different is, of course, interesting to terrorism, right? Because ultimately, the key point that we're going to make here is that when you're providing a public service and you withhold the public service in order to negotiate a better salary, even if I agree that like you deserve a better salary, you are to some extent holding innocent bystanders hostage. You are intentionally harming innocent bystanders in order to force the other um, party to cooperate with you. And, and it's not just that you're refusing to work. You have collectivized, so you're forcing other people not to work. And there's some question about like, oh, are you pressuring people to do that? The point is that you're harming innocent people to try and negotiate your point. And generally, that you know, trying to, I mean, it obviously is different, but highlighting in philosophical terms, why is that different to terrorism is important. Yeah, that'll be a really interesting question to come to. Before we get to that, let's wrap up some of the context with particular emphasis on why striking is important now. But then, yeah, let's let's get into the, the moral question is the interesting one, because that's probably the one that you guys, listeners, have been having yourselves. If you've discussed this, you know, is it justified is probably the thing that you've debated. Exactly. So so this is, I mean, I say that I put the heading, why is this important now? It really is, why is public services different, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because normally when we think about strikes, and certainly, you know, me, a habitual lefty who sympathizes with a lot, thinks a lot of Marxist thought is interesting, you know, especially a lot of neo-Marxist thought, although it isn't necessarily in Marxist, but certainly, you know, certainly finds it interesting. Never mind. Okay. Point is, normally, when we talk about strikes, we imagine the valiant workers standing up to a profit-hungry capitalist who's, who's cooped up in, in the top of their factory, like, why won't these peasants work for me? That they're just demanding fair pay. That's all they want. And for that reason, many of us will naturally support strikes when we hear that. But the important thing is that because these are public services, they have a new flavor, right? What happens when the loser in this negotiation isn't some profitable capitalist? You know, we're not just asking them to give up some profits, which are easy to give up. What happens when we're in a wider society where everyone is facing a cost of living crisis, mm -hmm. right? And there isn't really profit to be kind of just shared more fairly. Like it's ultimately comes from the taxpayer. Yeah. You're ultimately asking everyone to pay more to support it. When I say there isn't a profitable capitalist to kind of pin it as the bad guy, that's neither the person who directly suffers nor the person who's going to pay. Actually, it becomes innocent bystanders. It becomes the public. Mm. This relates to an interesting dynamic of the current series of strikes, which is that there feels like there's been a bit of a domino effect here, right? In terms of, I can't remember who started it. I want to presume it was the train drivers. Train uh, drivers. The thing is, train train drivers have striked much more frequently anyway. The tube in London, famously, like every year or two, and then the wider rail unions as well. But then recently, there's been a kind of domino effect. And I think this is part of the problem as well, where like a lot of these people saying there's a cost of living crisis, we need a pay rise. And I agree with it. But part of the problem is that 
everybody is going through a cost of living crisis. It's not so like, it's not like before where like we haven't been given pay rises for X number of years and the wider economy is doing well. It's like everybody is facing real wage declines at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And then like you say, there's this domino effect. And then suddenly it's like, who ends up the relative worst off of all? I say those who work in jobs that don't have an obvious union to appeal to, mm-hmm. which maybe is an argument that, hey, we should have more unions. And also, you know, I, I'd like to point out a lot of people who are in the type of work that is unionized are particularly worsely off. Like a lot of private sector jobs, you can individually negotiate your salary up every year or whatever. It's fine. But if you work in something like nursing, it's all very bureaucratic. and It's very bureaucratic. That sounded like I was, I was kind of negative on that. Like, don't get me wrong. I think the majority of these people asking for things are asking for pretty fair things. I think that, for example, nurses and teachers should be paid well enough to incentivize them to do their work and, and actually for more people to aspire to have those jobs. Specifically in this case, I think a lot of what's brought it to the point that we're striking is that people are asking for an above inflation pay rise. And that's to reflect the fact they haven't had one for such a long time. So they're basically arguing we've been basically losing money over time. If you were plotting it on a graph and this was like your real wage and the sort of inflation was a flat line, they've been underneath it. Their real wage has been declining. So now they're saying we want to be compensated by an above inflation pay rise and that's what sort of led things to stall because the government is saying where is that money going to come from i have a wider economic point on this right so i think a lot of these issues really at their heart have been bubbling for for decades because the truth is that for the average person real wages have been flat since about the 80s or something like that really that might need fact checking but fair (laughs) i'm quite sure or maybe it was the noughties i don't know and certainly they went down around 08 yeah, they definitely did then. But at the same time, prosperity has grown. It's just accrued to a smaller and smaller number of people. It's the exacerbation of inequality, yeah. This is it. So this, so when you think about it in that way, there is this kind of dynamic of like, hey, look, we're not asking for, we're not asking for more out of nowhere. The more exists, we just want the rich to share it, right? Mm. So there is this kind of like, look, there is a profitable capitalist who's the bad guy. We just want them to pay more so that we can have a, a reasonable lot. Right. And then mm-hmm. that kind of feels more appealing in that old fashioned way. But then when you take the microcosm of the current moment where they're like, this is we're choosing to strike now. Inflation is very high, et cetera, et cetera. But then I feel more conflicted because on the one hand, I agree. But on the other hand, you have chosen the one point where it's not like there is more productivity or prosperity for us to share. Like you've actually chosen the point where we're literally entering a recession. Things are actually getting worse. The total surplus is decreasing. However, it is that kind of like multi-decade back pay where it's like, mm. yes, it's decreasing, but we know that the rich can afford it and we should be taxing more appropriately so that we can fund our public services better. But then the problem is one of the practical ones, Jake, we talked a bit about inflation. Uh-huh. Do you want to relate how this how these negotiations relate to inflation? Do you mean anything different to what we've already said, where it's basically inflation is... I just mean the very specific thing that we mentioned. One of the drivers of inflation is pay rises. Oh, yeah. So then you kind of get the spiral effect. When you argue, particularly in a high inflation environment, we need pay rises, it actually can exacerbate that issue. This is definitely a case, though, of what might be sort of good for stabilizing the economy is not good for the union. (laughs) And it's almost impossible for the union to take that view that we should not accept pay rises now and negotiate at a better time because this is also the time when they feel the squeeze the hardest. So from a governmental point of view, it would actually make sense to try and ride this out and then orchestrate pay rises later. Uh, Because if they do do pay rises now, it kind of consolidates inflation. But that's a little bit of a cold economic look at it. Yeah. Don't forget that a huge part of inflation is cost push. So maybe this isn't as relevant as people think. That's one. And then two, like I said, it's funny because there's these overlapping narratives of like multi-decade, I'm very, very pro it. And then like this year, 
I'm talking about economic narratives, like multi-decade, very, very pro. We've been underpaying nurses and teachers chronically for far too long and all of these um, staff. But then one year, it's a little more mixed. It's like, oh, well, I mean, high inflation environment, the recessionary environment. Is this really now the time to be issuing all public services pay rises? Like, is that ultimately, I think you could also see it as a positive fiscal stimulus. If you give more cash to nurses and teachers, Mm -hmm. they're the kind of people who are near the breadline. So they spend it. So it's good for the economy. So, you know, you can kind of see, you can kind of see both ends there. Is your point just that it, it actually in some ways weakens their bargaining power or their like negotiating power because with everyone else striking and economic pressure at the level that it's at people actually have a weaker case or if, if everyone's striking the government can't be like it's almost a bit of a it's like brinksmanship the government can't be seen to give in to one without then like again it's sort of reverse dominoes and everyone needs to be paid more so the fact that everyone's doing it at once in some ways raises the profile but in other ways weakens their ability to get results it's a little bit of that and it's also that like actually if you think about the current period like the reasonable thing would be if you think about it in terms of modern monetary theory which is that like, instead of thinking like we tax to raise the funds to pay for things, instead we pay for things, but then we need to tax effectively to stop too much money supply going out. It would be like, okay, we'll issue that. Then we need to think about appropriate taxes to fund it after the fact, right? Now is not a popular environment because the people you'd have to tax to fund it are also facing the cost of living crisis, right? So it's kind of also not very popular in their favor. And this is part of what happened in the 70s and 80s where like, at first, there was a real groundswell of popularity, but then the subsequent reaction and ultimately became very negative and lacking support. And then also, sorry, all of this, we've kind of ended up debating whether they should have pay rises, to which my answer is largely, yes, they should. Just maybe now is not the time to argue a big block one. They should be negotiating for the future and, and retrospectively. I talked about that with the getting to yes thing, but that's where something creative as an alternative, like if you could agree to sort of staggered pay rises over time, that's the kind of thing that actually might, it might satisfy both parties. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then, to, but to be fair, we've kind of drifted a little too far from the question here. What about the specific instrument of striking? All of this could be handled some other way than holding the public hostage. Yeah. Right? Sorry, that's a that's a very aggressive terminology that makes it sound like <laughs> what they're after. But I'm intentionally being pejorative to really poke at like the, the moral problem here. So yeah. what's I mean, different with yeah. these public service strikes versus our communist ideal of the, the valiant worker standing up to the, the greedy capitalist? We've made four points in our notes. I'll read them for you. One there's always a third party who's sort of hurt by strike action in this case it is the wider general public so quite a big big externality actually i would I'd flip that around and say it's not that there is always a third party hurt it's that in the like ideal that we support there's actually no third party hurt yeah. it's just one of the two parties right in this That's case true. there is a third party i was thinking about this on, on my way to record this actually it was like in an ideal world you really only want to hold the employer hostage to use your use your phrasing you really want the effect to be on them and actually in this case i mean this is this is where the public being affected is an uncomfortable and painful thing one of the strikes this was interesting just an anecdote but one of the strikes that affected me sort of was the border force strike i was flying home from a uh, holiday over christmas border force was striking actually our plane got delayed so we suddenly got affected by the strike which was really annoying i was like no we oh, you <laughs> we were supposed to arrive just before it. we were supposed to arrive the day before and uh, delays and everything so we ended up flying back border force was striking i was like god that's like another thing just to be added to the sort of hassle of this delay however the contingency plan in place was that they drafted in the army i've actually never been through passport control faster <laughs> it was really <laughs> and this is one of the things where actually it probably works really well because the public weren't the public me weren't sort of really harmed by this but the people who had to organize it obviously went through the hassle of having to make this contingency plan so that probably was quite an effective strike also a note actually a note on the, the public right 
So the thing is, a lot of these are public services or quasi-public services, right? Mm -hmm. So who they're trying to hold to account is the government. How do you hold the government to account? Public opinion, right? Which is why hurting the public kind of makes sense. But the problem is that that's a double-edged sword. Again, we come back to the example of the 1780 strikes, right? Mm -hmm. In that, like, if you're holding, if you're hurting the public in order to incentivize the government to do something, the government, as is currently the case, can also stand their ground and be like, the public is going to stop supporting you. This is interesting. I've, I've got some stats on this because I, I'm still inclined to think in this case, what really happens is it makes the government look bad. It, it does hold the government up as the bad guy. It makes it look like they're doing a poor job of negotiating and, and ensuring fair standards of living. Um, but YouGov did a poll, just to give you some quick stats, on you know how, how much public support there were for stri- was for strike action. And it found that nearly two thirds of people supported the nurses' strike and ambulance workers and and stuff in healthcare. Only about one in three backed things like university staff strikes. So actually, invert like proportional with the with the sort of essentialness of what if that's a word. How the more essential the service, the more public support there was for the strike action. I, I also kind of feel like there's cultural zeitgeist in the UK for people who aren't from here, and feel free to disagree. Send us a message if you don't. I feel like there's this kind of quiet understanding almost that for example being a doctor or a nurse or an ambulance care a driver or whatever mm-hmm. we kind of trade off the fact that people are personally driven to do those things and then underpay them because mm-hmm. if you think about what these people could earn in for example the uk us and the amount of training they have to do mm-hmm. um, and how difficult and stressful the job is they're horribly underpaid and so when they're like look we kind of need more i feel like public opinion is generally like yeah that's fair enough right mm-hmm. but i tell you who doesn't have that support or doesn't have that support as much and that's the train drivers <laughs> <laughs> I would expect that's very true. Maybe there's a small majority, but I, I feel like the overwhelming argument is it comes back to more of the stuff we were saying before, where it's like, you know what, maybe these people are trying to preserve jobs that kind of don't need to exist. This is this is actually the big fear. And, and part of the reason they're striking is to protect jobs in the future, because largely actually driven by COVID and changing and changes in working norms, trains are less required because people work from home so much more. So services are being sort of rescheduled. And not to mention simple technology makes certain elements of the job simply require fewer people. So not yeah. just like automate the trains, don't have drivers, but like, you know, as we get more and more automated ticket booths and stuff, do we need as many staff at the stations? Mm-hmm. Do we need as many staff walking up and down the trains? And also, economic argument, like we kind of have them there for, I don't know, moral, like feel like we're policing stuff for reason, but like, how many people does a ticket checker need to catch for it to, for their job mm-hmm. to make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fines are pretty hefty, actually, so. <laughs> actually, they're not. They're not at all. Like, more often than not, you pay like double the train fare. I've actually sometimes felt like a fucking idiot for paying train fare. Really? Um, I'm Just like, you know what? No one's checked it. It's open either side. And I'm like, the fine was only 2x. Like, if I get caught one in 10 times, I actually make a huge saving. The other problem is you can only get caught so many times. Anyway, sorry. This was like that Freakonomics guy had that whole thing on that, didn't he? He, he had a union of like fair dodges, <laughs> not a union, but like a group of fair dodges because he was like, it's, it's like insurance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's actually, that's a thing. So there's a union of people who like refuse to pay for public transport and they collectivize and yeah. they all pay in whatever, 10 pounds a month. And then whenever any of them gets caught, they pay it off. Which is uh, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a civil movement against paying for transport. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. We've gone off on a big tra- tangent. Difference yeah. versus our communist ideal. Who's being hurt? The public. Two. Unions are arguably too powerful and exercising too much power. How do you even become a TFL driver is the example we've given because they, they're really like sort of keeping people out there. They're sort of gatekeeping it. So is collectivization extortion in disguise? Provocative question. This is the interesting thing about the collectivization point, right? I gave that micro example of a cafe where it's like, look, mm-hmm. even in a liquid market, if everyone bands together and agrees not to turn up to work tomorrow, 
I'm out of work as the owner for two weeks to a month, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just while I replace the staff, right? So how do we ensure it happens that I think a lot of these requests are legitimate, but how do we procedurally ensure that people don't collectivize for unfair requests? And arguably, you know, as a Londoner, thinking about the, the benefit of the TFL and how much they're paid, that's an example of a strike that happens fairly often. That, like some of us, I think, might start to start to feel a bit more like, come on, guys, like you're paid ridiculously well considering the work that you do. We really should be transitioning to better technology that eliminates some of these jobs. Like we're keeping zombie jobs alive because mm -hmm. of union power. And that's another one, for example, just unions, you know, preserving jobs. And it's like, well, in the midterm, you're preserving zombie jobs. That's not a good thing. This links, this links directly to point three, which is, are we ignoring necessary societal change? It and then the example there is the miners in the 70s and 80s, like specific procedure how it happened, probably bad, but on a multi-decade perspective, the transition away from coal, necessary and good. Yeah, it's just a shame that it had to happen, as you say, in such a way that was like, it had such painful consequences across the board, not just for the miners, but for society while the strikes were going on. And you, you like to think that had that negotiation been handled over time, more patiently, more upfront, you know, a little bit more creatively. You could have avoided that. Anyway, fourth point, again, what is different? So we had public being hurt, unions being too powerful, avoiding necessary change, sorry, ignoring necessary change. Four, do modern rules really properly incentivize people to not strike? Typically, there's a supermajority vote required, but what incentives do the current workers have to think about long-term public good or anything but their own personal benefit in this calculus? This is the problem we are discussing earlier. It relates to a lot of the other problems like necessary change, is it extortion in disguise? But yeah, ultimately the point is, particularly for public services, we ultimately want these things to be for public good, right? I can't think of an example of something like this, but like, let's say for example, there was a public service that actually didn't need to exist anymore. The union for that public service would never petition for them to not exist, right? Um, However, the public incentive would certainly be that like, hey, we should transition away from this. A bit like the call I guess, right? And the point is that a lot of these unions and stuff will say like, hey, well, look, we don't take this lightly. A supermajority is required. But the thing that they're not paying attention to is the fact that like, you're asking the people who, one, at some point become pressured to join the strike, and two, have no incentive to think about the incentives for anyone but the workers. And in a way that makes sense, because that's, that's who they're negotiating. Yeah, that is their responsibility. That, that's the side of the argument they're on, right? But on the other hand, you know, this again comes back to it's a public service. Ultimately, the public services are provided for the public good. This links to, to something a little bit down below in the notes. But something I looked into because I got curious was you said at the very start that there are some people who just aren't allowed to strike. And I think the examples we gave are the military and the police. And what's interesting is I actually I thought the healthcare workers would have been included in that bracket. And legally, they kind of are, but then there are sort of careful caveats of like, as long as contingencies can be laid and stuff like that. But generally, yeah, essential services, so police, firefighters, healthcare workers can be restricted from striking due to the potential impact on public safety and welfare. And I suppose in these contexts, they've had to follow due procedure. So the ambulance workers, they've had to make sure that, you know, there's cover in place, although it's definitely, you know, that it had, there have been impacts. Like it's definitely slowed down people's ability to reach ambulances, get treatment, et cetera. So there have been consequences felt, but I presume that's the point of these laws is to try and provide some means of protection. And that probably, not to like cut to the sort of end, but that probably is the answer, right? Like you want them to have the right, but there needs to just be due process in place to avoid it being devastating. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. And the other thing is that we, we probably want to 
do better jobs of avoiding it. But ultimately, anytime that you set up an independent agency or whatever, it's just going to become biased. It's like setting rules for who gets to vote, right? Whoever sets the rules are going to be biased. <laughs> just reminded me of the epistocracy comments again. Which are totally relevant here. There's still a few notes there, but let's let's jump to the main meat of the argument. And before we, we talk too much, how do we determine when a strike is justified? This is the real key question. What is the moral case for this? When when is striking justified? When is it not? It's an ultimately a line drawing question. And, and so where do we draw that line? I think the sad, annoying answer is that like, especially because we're both mostly consequentialists, utilitarians, I guess the ultimate answer is that like, Don't if you want to take a societal left-leaning yeah that's true you want to take a societal perspective probably and the answer is that it it depends it's when it's proportionate and it's there's genuinely no other alternative um so for example you know the result is that i can sit on a spectrum where like some of the strikes i'm very supportive of like the nurses and i think it's ridiculous that we're willing to shut down the country for two years in the interest of public safety but we're not willing to pay nurses a livable wage. I just think this is the one case, yeah, this this baffles me a bit because I think this is the one where the governments could very reasonably say, we've given pay rises to nurses. However, teachers, everyone else, we're not going to give you as much because, you know, COVID happened. And there's there's such a clear sort of PR line for why nurses would deserve it that I don't know I don't know why they're why they're being so stubborn on that point. That you know, personal view there, but that sort of confuses me. However, little to, to argue the other side, I don't know enough about this to really make a fair argument. But like, I've even spoken to doctors who said like the NHS is too bureaucratic. There's too much inefficiency, uh-huh. and more decision making power should not necessarily be outsourced, but should certainly be de- devolved more. Uh-huh. So like, more more authority to make decisions in smaller areas where they can stream things for themselves. That ties in with like, my question is they're like, oh, we make contingency plans so there'll be no impact, negative impact on um, on people during the strikes. The hard capitalist in me says, well, if you can make that plan, why are the staffing levels normally higher? I see, I see. I mean, I, the point there is they are contingencies, right? So like if you were permanently had the military driving ambulances or, or staffing border force, then we'd create like defense vulnerabilities. <laughs> is it? The military who's doing the nursing? They job? did border force. I actually don't, I, I yeah, I can't remember. In the, I think they did in the case of ambulance driving as well. I wouldn't swear to that. So fact check me, but um, border force, they definitely did. And as per my anecdote, it was extremely efficient. <laughs> but I suppose we couldn't, we couldn't make that a permanent arrangement because otherwise, you know, you leave gaps. Okay, so give some headlines from a utilitarian perspective. I mean, it's certainly like, it's a balancing thing. It's when is it proportionate? But I think the main thing is that you are, damaging one norm and it could be a norm that you know say for example someone who takes like a strict deontological approach or rule-based approach to the morality could disagree with and it's that you're harming a third party an innocent third party and if anything if anything you know a lot of these public services and the, the spirit of the strike that they're pursuing really should be in agreement support of the people who they're ultimately hurting you know because it's not people with private health care who are losing out when nurses strike or people who can afford ubers you know, and whatever alternative arrangements when trains strike, you're ultimately disproportionately hurting the worst off, many of whom are in the same position and ultimately, you know, can actually even end up more hurt because if the economy is going through a recession, the best off end up, you know, relatively still fine. You have these unionized groups who maybe can make things a bit better for themselves and actually you're making things even worse for the other worst off in society. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of disenfranchising another element of society that really you know, shares your, your issue. That's a really good point, actually. I'm glad you mentioned it because it's it, that holds true across, I think, a lot of strikes as well, particularly you look at like teachers, you know, people who need to make arrangements to look after their kids. 
and then schools are on strike and, and it just it's the sort of stuff that doesn't affect the sort of middle classes and upper middle classes because they can afford to make their own arrangements and in some cases aren't even affected by this. I don't know, private schools went on strike, for example. I doubt they doubt they do or I don't know if they even have the right but I don't think so. Teachers, nurses private schools will just be like private jobs where like people just negotiate their salaries individually and they're paid well enough that they um Yeah, don't. exactly. Exactly. Whereas nurses, as you say, I mean, it doesn't affect people who can afford private health. And I mean, I think that could even, again, be a case of why the government have been so slow to grapple with some of these things is because they don't necessarily feel the effects firsthand themselves. But yeah, it's a very, very fair point that actually... It's bad that you're hurting people and it's bad that the people that you're hurting disproportionately are the worst off. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I, I don't know that that undermines the justification for striking, but it's certainly a sad consequence. It's an uncomfortable dynamic. Jake, we've discussed this earlier, right? You, you say it's an uncomfortable dynamic, right? How do you justify a strike without justifying terrorism? Ah, oh, back to that question. Yeah. Right. And so I guess the, <laughs> argument, the, argument, the, argument, the argument is that like it's proportionate, but like how do you decide if it's proportionate? Because I mean, with a terrorist, a terrorist you could say is never right, right? Yeah. You could say it's never right to hold a third party hostage to get what you want. How do we distinguish a strike in that case? Maybe it's because it's more to do with withdrawing labor than directly harming someone. In general, right, the way to answer these kind of argument by analogy issues is to look at the assumptions made on both sides. And that's how you draw the distinctions is because when you phrase it like that, you can see the similarities. You're affecting a third party in order to further your own aims. If you phrase it literally like that, it sounds identical. It's where you introduce the details and disentangle them that it, I think, the analogy falls apart a bit. So for one, you're withholding labor or essential services, whereas terrorism, I assume you don't mean literally in the case of like keeping people physically hostage, you're talking about like acts of terror. Whatever form of terrorism. So I guess, yeah. Whatever it is you are, yeah. It's an indirect consequence of you withdrawing your labor. You're not just directly harming people. It's very different to say, I'm not going to come to work, which in the private market is a totally appropriate thing to do, versus to say, you know, I have a gun to someone's head, right? Even if the outcome is the same, this person is going to die unless you pay me fairly. Mm. There's still a big moral distance between like direct and indirect, because ultimately, you know, you could kind of think of like saving that person's life in the case of a public service is the government's job and contracting appropriately to get people to fulfill that service is, you know, failing to do that is a failure of the government, not of the person, you know, not volunteering to do it for free. Yeah. Morally, there's another really big difference in the details, which again is, you know, we haven't gone into it that much, but with striking, there is a lot of due process that needs to take place in order for a strike to be legitimate. And a big part of what falls under that is is what, what we said about contingencies, right? I doubt this happens perfectly, but in theory, the net result is that the public shouldn't be as affected. I, like I said, I doubt that's the case. I'm sure the ambulance workers' strikes did lead to a lot of problems and some of them were probably, you know, fatal or near fatal. So that's, that's where the analogy looks closer, but you have at least sort of plans for contingencies. Whereas in the case of terrorism, there's no contingency planning. You're performing acts of terror or violence in order to literally like make a point, make a case, further your aims. There's no there's no sort of protection in place. Well, the funny thing is, if you were to talk to someone in the IRA or what was the name of the political group in South Africa that Mandela was a part of? Oh, the ANC. Yeah. If you were to talk to them, they would have said, hey, the due process wasn't acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. They would have said the negotiations weren't fair and we had no choice, right? The argument would have felt very similar. Again, the difference is the direct versus indirect. Like they're not just withdrawing labor, which, you know, like I said, in the private market would be totally fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess actually another question again, so it's related to private markets. And I guess the answer is a little bit what I highlighted earlier. Like there's more friction, so it kind of make it, it doesn't work the same. But like, why can't this function more like private markets? If the government doesn't pay enough for nursing, why don't more people just, you know, individually, not collectivized in an extortionate way, 
why don't they just individually withdraw their labor? And then the government sees the pressure to either raise wages or source people from elsewhere and open up visas to more people, for example, where the trade-off is like, okay, the pay isn't amazing, but you get to immigrate to the UK. Well, I, I think the answer to that is they do, right? And I think that's part of why, in the case of nurses, we're in this problem, because you have had a lot of burnout, you've had a lot of people leaving, and it's got to the point where those that remain are suffering from associated sh staffing shortages, there's not enough of them left. They feel like they're underpaid because they're taking on more responsibility. But I mean, I, I think you're correct. I think that's kind of what's happening. But and the, the problem is it's too slow and that these people care enough and don't want to. Well, it's never going to hit the equilibrium of like, it's never going to hit that extreme equilibrium of there are no nurses. And I think we're on the road to that being the case. There's not enough nurses. And that's those that are left. Uh, are, I guess kind of negotiations are more, are more step ladder than smooth curve is the point, because I think For so. example, there's not individual wage negotiation. It's not a super fluid market, so it can't function that way. It doesn't end up functioning that way. I understand how individually you've trained to be a nurse. Uh, you're from the UK. It makes more sense individually to organize a strike than to just retrain as something else. The private market equilibrium thing would be like, well, if it's so bad being a nurse, quit and do something else. But I mean, hopefully and luckily there's enough so morally upstanding people that they don't want to. <laughs> and then the problem is that, like, like I said earlier, like bringing people from elsewhere, uh, training people takes a long time. So like, and then I, I think the problem as well is that a lot of people who, become, who build these public services, like I said, part of it isn't the money. Part of it is feeling an obligation to help. I think in almost all of these cases, but we've focused particularly on the nurses. So I'm, I'm going to keep referring to that. I think striking is, is totally justified. I'm actually quite pro it. I feel like I've actually become more pro it in the course of this conversation, although I was already very pro it anyway. It concerned me. And I mean, obviously, the, we, we talked about the sort of tensions there. The, the thing that always concerned me was it's an essential service. You're affecting the public, particularly the worst off members of the public. Does that in any way undermine the justification of your cause? However, I think, I hope there's enough due process in place. There's contingencies. There's all sorts of acts. I mean, I've made in the notes the Trade Union and Labor Relations Act of 1992. So there's notice in place for contingencies and stuff. And I think should that be followed? It's sad that it gets to the stage where there are strikes taking place. And I mean, I maybe have less sympathy for like the train drivers, as we've discussed. But in the case of nurses and these guys, I'm largely in favor. And I think it's an important element of society and action. Yeah, it's an important balance that we have unions, that we have strikes. It's not a perfect equilibrium, but generally, I think it's a good thing. I would say... I'm in a funny position where like, I actually think the nurses should get bigger pay raises than they're asking for. I personally think teachers, nurses, all of these things, they should get like 25, 30, 40% pay raises. We should be on the road to making these appealing jobs. And like I said, no one who provides such a socially productive form of work that's difficult should be at risk of living an undignified life. There's good long-term planning there. It's, it's strategic in the long-term to make that the case. I agree. It's just, it's investing in the country and it's also a fiscal policy. It's giving these people money to spend the economy. Ironically, despite holding that view, I'm a little softer on it in that, like, I support many of them. So, like, I ultimately support given the context of what exists. I know, uh, like, nurses and teacher, teachers a little less, but nurses especially, yes. But I think that we should just have more social or, or democratic infrastructure to avoid it ever reaching that point, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I'm, I am a little uncomfortable with, like, yes, it's not the same as terrorism because there's a difference between me withdrawing my labor and me actively putting a gun to someone's head. But when the outcome is the same, it's, I'm not saying it's equivalent, but it's hard to argue that you're not kind of being unfair. And I get that ultimately reflects on the employer, especially when I agree that their circumstances are unfair. It's hard to morally get your head around. Uh, I would prefer that they just didn't happen, even though I ultimately agree with what they're striking for. Time's running out. Five, four, four three. Much love, guys. Thank you, guys. We'll see you on the next episode.